Section 25 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Triumphs of Hildebrand, the turning point of the Middle Ages. Henry the Fourth begs for mercy at Canossa, A.D. 1073 to 1085. Arthur R. Pennington, Artaud de Montour. If during the pontificate of Innocent the Third. 1198 to 1216, the papal power attained its greatest height, yet under one of his predecessors the chair of St. Peter became a throne of almost absolute supremacy. This mighty pontiff, Gregory the Seventh, whose real name, Hildebrand, indicates his German descent, was born, the son of a carpenter, in Tuscany about 1020. He became a monk of the Benedictine order, and was educated at the Abbey of Cluny in France. In 1044 he went to Rome, called by a papal election, and there saw abuses which from that moment he fixed his mind upon striving to abolish. In 1048 he was again in Rome, and soon rose to the rank of cardinal. For many years, Hildebrandt was the real director of papal policy, and long before his election as pope, in 1073, he worked to accomplish the reforms that distinguish his pontificate, which continued till his death in 1085. As a part of the Holy Roman Empire, Italy held a dual relation to the emperor and the pope. Between the Roman pontiffs and the secular heads of the empire, the struggle for supremacy had been long and often bitter. At the time of Hildebrand's active appearance, the papacy was in a state of degradation which demoralized the church itself. Long before his elevation to the papal chair, Hildebrand's efforts had met with much success, and the power of the Holy See was gradually increased independently of the emperor, whose will had hitherto governed the papal elections, in 1058, chiefly through the influence of Hildebrand, Pope Nicholas II was chosen by a new method, and from that time the choice of popes has been made by the sacred college of cardinals. Hildebrand reluctantly accepted the office of pope, but having entered upon the task which he knew to be so formidable, he pursued it with such energy, courage, and success as to make his pontificate one of the most memorable in the annals of the church. Of his greatest contest within the ecclesiastical jurisdiction over the celibacy of the clergy and simony, as well as of those with the imperial power represented by Henry the Fourth, the War of Investitures, the following account will be found to present the essential features with a clearness and comprehensiveness which are seldom seen in the relation of matter 
so complex and in a narrative so concise. The differing viewpoints are also instructive, as presented by Pennington of the Church of England and Artaud, the standard Roman Catholic authority. Arthur R. Pennington The time had come when Hildebrand was to receive the reward of the important services which he had rendered to the Holy See. He had been the ruling spirit under five popes, Leo, Victor, Stephen, Nicholas, and Alexander, four of whom were indebted to him for their election. But now he must himself be raised to the papal throne. The clergy were assembled in the Lateran church to celebrate the obsequies of Alexander. Hildebrand, as archdeacon, was performing the service. Suddenly, in the midst of the requiem for the departed, a shout was heard which seemed to come as if by inspiration from the assembled multitude. Quote, Hildebrand is Pope. St. Peter chooses the archdeacon Hildebrand. End quote. From the funeral procession, Hildebrand flew to the pulpit, and with impassioned gestures seeming to be imploring silence. The storm, however, did not cease till one of the cardinals, in the name of the sacred college, declared that they had unanimously elected him whom the people had chosen. Arrayed in scarlet robes, crowned with the papal tiara, Gregory the Seventh ascended the chair of St. Peter. The Pope very soon made known the course which he should pursue. He issued a prohibition against the marriage of the clergy, and in a council at Rome abolished the right of investiture. He was determined to redress the wrongs of society. He had seen oppression laying waste the fairest provinces of Europe. He had seen many princes goaded on by the revengeful passions of their nature flinging wide their standard to the winds and dipping their hands in the blood of those who, if Christianity be not a fable, were their very brothers. A magnificent vision arose up before him. He would rule the world by religion. He would be the Caesar of the spiritual monarchy. He and a council of prelates, annually assembled at Rome, would constitute a tribunal from whose judgment there should be no appeal, empowered to hold the supreme mediation in matters relating to the interests of the body politic, to settle contested successions to kingdoms, and to compel men to cease from their dissensions. Footnote. That is, the right of the civil power to grant church offices at will, and to invest ecclesiastics with symbols of their offices and receive their oaths of fealty End footnote. the civil power was to pledge itself to be prompt in the execution of their decrees against those who despised their authority but if the decisions of those judges were to carry weight they must be men of unblemished integrity the purity of their ermine must be altogether unsullied the sale of the highest spiritual offices by the prince, who had deprived the clergy and people of their right to elect them, which had stained the hands of the church and undermined its power, must be altogether forbidden. Elections must be free. The custom of investiture by sovereigns with the ring and crozier 
which had rendered the hierarchy and clergy preachers of their will, must be forbidden. The clergy must possess an absolute exemption from the criminal justice of the state. They must recognize but one ruler, the Pope, who disposed of them indirectly through the bishops, or directly in cases of exemption, and used them as tools for the execution of his behests. In fact, they were to constitute a vast army, exclusively devoted to the service of an ecclesiastical monarch. They must be unconnected by marriage with the world around them, that they might be bound more closely to one another and to their head, that they might be saved from the temptation of restless projects for the advancement of their families, which have caused so much scandal in the world, and that they might give an exalted idea of their sanctity inasmuch as, in order that, they might give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, they would forego that connubial bliss, the portion of those, quote, the happiest of their kind, whom gentler stars unite in one fate, their hearts, their fortunes, and their beings blend, End quote. The marriage of the clergy was everywhere more or less repugnant to the general feeling of Christendom. The rise and progress of asceticism in the church had their source in human nature. Its growth was quickened by a reaction from the immorality of paganism. The general effect on the position of the clergy was to compel them to keep progress with the prevailing movement. Men consecrated to the service of Jehovah must rise superior to the common herd of their fellow creatures. By a decree of Pope Sericius at the end of the fourth century, marriage was interdicted to all priests and deacons. This decree was, however, very imperfectly observed during the following centuries. The general feeling was, however, at this time, very strongly against the married clergy. But throughout the spiritual realm of Hildebrand in Italy, from Calabria to the Alps, the clergy had risen up in rebellion against him and the popes his predecessors when they attempted to coerce them into celibacy. We believe that this opposition, much more than the strife as to investitures, was the cause of the strong feeling, almost unprecedented, which existed against Gregory Seventh. We must now show that Gregory enforced his views as to investitures. This part of our subject is important because it gave occasion for the assertion that the Pope could depose the Holy Roman Emperor and the King of Italy if he should find him morally or physically disqualified for fulfilling the condition on which his appointment depended, that he should defend him from his enemies. Henry the Fourth, at the beginning of his reign, only ten years of age, was at this time emperor. Footnote, that is, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, which included the German-speaking people of Europe, and also, in theory at least, Italy. End footnote. One day, as he was standing by the Rhine, a galley with silken streamers appeared, into which he was invited to enter. After he had been gliding for some time down the stream, he found that he was a prisoner. The archbishops of Milan and Cologne 
with other powerful lords, have consigned him to a degrading captivity, administered in his name the government of the empire. By affording him every means of vicious indulgence, they were only too successful in corrupting a noble and generous nature. Very soon he was guilty of crimes, and plunged into excesses which seemed to cry aloud for vengeance. The Pope saw that the time had come for the execution of his designs. Henry had been guilty of the grossest simony. The spiritual dignities had been openly sold to the highest bidder. He also saw that, while the clergy took the oath of fealty to the monarch, and were invested by him with the ring and crozier, he could not establish the superiority of the spiritual to the temporal jurisdiction. He therefore summoned a council at the Lateran, 1075, which issued a decree against lay investitures. The Pope, having thus declared war against the Emperor, proceeded to fill up certain vacant bishoprics, and to suspend bishops, both in Germany and Italy, who had been guilty of simony. He also cited Henry before him to answer for his simony, crimes, and excesses. This citation is alleged to have given occasion for an attempted crime, supposed to have been sanctioned by Henry, which may show us that while the Pope was asserting a right to rule over the nations, he could not rule in his own city. On Christmas Eve, 1075, the city of Rome was visited with a violent tempest. Darkness brooded over the land. The inhabitants thought that the day of judgment was at hand. In the midst of this war of the elements, two processions were seen advancing toward the church of Santa Maria Maggiore. At the head of one of them was Hildebrand, leading his priests to worship at a shrine. At the head of the other was Cincius, a Roman noble. In one of the pauses in the roar of the tempest, when the Pope was heard blessing his flock, the arm of Cincius grasped his person, and the sword of a ruffian inflicted a wound on his forehead. Bound with cords, the Pope was removed to a mansion in the city, from which he was the next day to be removed to exile or to death. A sword was aimed at the pontiff's bosom, when the cries of a fierce multitude, threatening to burn down the house, arrested the arm of the assassin. An arrow, discharged from below, reached and slew the latter. Cincius fell at the Pope's feet, a suppliant for pardon and for life. The pontiff immediately pardoned him. Then, amid the acclamations of the Roman people, Gregory proceeded to complete the interrupted solemnities at Santa Maria Maggiore. The war between Henry and the Pope continued. Henry summoned a synod at Worms in January 1076 which decreed the deposition of the Pope. The envoy charged to convey this sentence appeared in the council chamber of the Lateran in February before an assembly consisting of the mightiest in the land, whom the Pope had summoned to sit in judgment on Henry. With flashing eyes and in a voice of thunder, he directed the Pope to descend from the chair of St. Peter, Cries of indignation rang through the hall, and a hundred swords were seen leaping from their scabbards to inflict vengeance on the daring intruder. The Pope, with difficulty, stilled the angry tumult. Then, rising with calm dignity, amid the breathless silence of the assembled multitude, he uttered that dread anathema which shuts paradise and opens hell, 
and absolve the subjects of Henry from their allegiance. The inhabitants of Europe were struck dumb with amazement when they witnessed this exercise of papal prerogative. They thought that the powerful arm of Henry would have been raised to smite down the audacious Hildebrand. Pope, however, well knew that Henry had by his excesses alienated from himself the affections of his subjects. The sentence gave a pretext to many of his nobility to withdraw from their allegiance. Awed by spiritual terrors, his attendants fell away from him as if he had been smitten by a leprosy. An assembly was now summoned at Trebor in obedience to a requisition from the Pope at which it was decreed that if the emperor continued excommunicate on the 23rd of February 1077, his crown should be given to another. The theory of the Holy Roman Empire had thus become a practical reality. The vassal of Otho had reduced the successor of Otho to vassalage. A great pope had wrung from the superstition and reverence of mankind a spiritual empire which, it was hoped, would extend its sway to earth's remotest boundaries. End of section 25